0: As we begin, I have one really quick additional announcement to make. Uh, for those that I don't know, first of all, my name is Matt Morton. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and uh, as you may know, we are about to begin next August a third location. Right now we have our Anderson and Southwood locations. Our third campus will be opening uh, further south in College Station next August and we are working on the specific location right now, but I'm going to be the teaching pastor at that location. So I'm excited to move forward and have the privilege to continue to teach the word of God over there. We are also wanting to bring on another pastor who will join me over there. His name is Chris Thompson. He's going to be what we call the campus pastor. So while I am teaching and helping to lead that campus, Chris will be helping with congregational care and a lot of the operations, making sure we get things set up well and going, and a lot of our ministries over there. He is here this morning with his family, his wife Erica and his kids Callie and Hudson. Uh, You can meet them if you'd like. Lunch today after the 11 a.m. service in the fireside room right across over here we're also going to spend some time praying for the third campus, and I'll give a little bit more information about where we are on that planning process. So we'd love to have you there. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, and uh, before we dive into the passage, I just want to give a really quick disclaimer, particularly to you parents. This passage does address the issue of sexual immorality, and uh, I'm not going to be graphic any more than the passage itself. However, there are some terms and concepts that may not uh, quite be appropriate for small children. And so use your discretion, whether your kids are ready, to talk about some of the concepts that we're going to talk about this morning. If not, uh, you're welcome to take them over to the child care if they are older than, say, 9 or 10 and you haven't begun any of this conversation with them, it is the time because the odds are good that if they have not yet heard something about sex and uh, God's plan for it from you, they're beginning to hear it from others outside of your home. And so uh, I'd encourage you to begin that conversation now. But we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. I want to start by sharing a little bit about a Gallup poll survey that I ran across this week from 2013. In this poll, they asked Americans about their views on various moral issues, sexual issues, but also issues like cloning and issues like gambling and suicide and a number of things. And what they wanted to get at was how do our views on some of these moral issues compare to say 10 or 15 years ago? Are we more approving of certain behaviors, less approving of other behaviors? And uh, you may not be surprised to find that in the area of sexual morality, there was an increasing acceptance across the board for a variety of behaviors that were once considered immoral. There is now a majority acceptance across all age groups for premarital sex Uh, majority acceptance across all age groups in the United States for homosexuality, for having a child outside of wedlock, the approval for every behavior, pornography, teenage sex, all of those things, the approval rates have gone up. What I found most surprising about the survey was that the increase in approval was not primarily driven by those in the 18 to 34 age range. But in fact, the greatest increase in approval for these behaviors that the scripture considers out of bounds, the greatest increase came among those 55 and older. And so in our culture, there's been this shift where, you know, most of us are not surprised to find that the younger generations are generally more tolerant of out-of-bounds behavior. Younger generations always are typically a bit more liberal. Uh, but what we're finding in our culture is that as certain generations age, the approval for immoral behavior increases even among those that used to be the ones that held the line to say this is wrong and to teach that to younger generations. There was only one behavior in the survey where there was less acceptance for it than there was in 2001, and that was uh, medical testing of animals. So all kinds of moral behavior has been considered now in bounds Except those that might inconvenience a puppy or a kitten, right? All other behaviors we say, that's okay, we're increasing acceptance. Now there were still behaviors like uh, adultery itself, right? Extramarital affairs, that there was a very low approval rate. But in general, there was this increasing acceptance across almost every area of behavior. Now, we read something like that, and it's very tempting to think that our culture is avant-garde, that we're the first ones that have dealt with these kinds of issues, or that sexual morality issues in our culture are new. But that's not the case. And in fact, as you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, what you see is that Paul is writing to a church living in the middle of a culture very similar to ours, In fact, their culture in some ways uh, was looser about certain morality issues than we are. In the first century, in Corinth, prostitution was not illegal. And in fact, most Greek philosophers, like Cicero, considered it okay. Both for married and unmarried men to engage in prostitution. Uh, Homosexuality was not generally frowned upon in the Corinthian culture. And in fact, the Corinthian culture was somewhat licentious when it came to issues of homosexuality. Even in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I know uh, Brian talked about this a few weeks ago, uh, there was a a situation where a man was sleeping with his mother-in-law and the church was accepting of that behavior. And Paul says, not even the the pagans, not even the Gentiles accept this behavior, but you within the church accept it because they had so absorbed the sexual ethic of their culture that they even pushed beyond it and said, anything is okay. Throughout the passage we're looking at today, verses 12 through 20, Paul uses this Greek word porneia from which we get our word pornography. Now back in the first century in Corinth, obviously they didn't have pornography as we have it today. But I think if they had, Paul would have put it under this broad rubric of what he calls porneia, sexual immorality. It covers a broad variety of sexual behavior that is outside the boundaries of sex between one man and one woman in the marital context. And the Corinthians are deeply engaged in all sorts of porneia. And in verses 12 through 20, he explicitly and specifically addresses the issue of prostitution, which was a problem not only in the culture, but even in the church. And what I find most fascinating about this passage is this, that when Paul exhorts them to be pure in sexual morality, He exhorts them starting with the gospel itself. In other words, Paul doesn't come to them and say, avoid sexual immorality because it might lead to pregnancy or it might lead to disease or it might lead to these tangible bodily consequences, although that's true. But instead, he says sexual morality is a deeply spiritual issue that relates to the union that you and I have with Jesus Christ. And the way that I behave myself with my body is a reflection on my relationship with Jesus. So that to step outside the boundaries of what God has put in place regarding sex is actually an attack with my behavior on the gospel itself. That's going to be the nature of the statement that Paul makes as we walk through this passage this, that sexual immorality is actually rebellion against the gospel. Now I want to be clear. He's not saying that a person engaged in sexual immorality cannot be a Christian. In fact, quite the opposite. He is addressing Christians. But what he is saying is that when you engage in behavior sexually that is outside the boundaries of what God has put in place for marriage, that is rebellion against the gospel. It's a failure to remember the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that in his death and resurrection, for those who have believed in him, we've been united with him in the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God now lays claim to our bodies, both now and for the future. See, we're united to him now, but one day, and Paul's going to go straight to the resurrection and say that your body is claimed for resurrection and holiness and the glory of God. So that how we behave ourselves is an issue of how we're thinking about our relationship with Jesus. It's a spiritual issue. I am certain that in this room, there are men and women struggling with all sorts of issues related to sexual morality. Having been a pastor at this church for more than 10 years, and for the majority of that time, having been engaged in college ministry, I'm aware that Christians struggle all across the board. It may may be here that you're, you're here this morning, and you are actively engaged in some sort of sexual immorality. It may be The type of issue that Paul addresses as an illustration in this passage, whether it's prostitution or adultery, it may be an issue of pornography, it may be an issue of homosexual behavior, and you may fall across the spectrum in how you are dealing with that. It may be that you're engaged in that behavior and you say, you know what, I am not repentant about it because what I do in my time with my body is my business. Or it may be you fall in another area or another sort of attitude where you say, I really want to stop but I feel trapped. Maybe that you're here and you're doing great. You have a healthy relationship with your spouse, or if you're not married, you have a healthy view of sexuality and you are using your body in ways that honor God. It may be that in the past you have sinned and you're here feeling shame, even as we talk about these issues. And the great thing is, as we talk through this passage this morning, The gospel of Jesus Christ addresses wherever you are that the Spirit of God provides power to overcome sin. That the Spirit of God provides conviction for those who struggle to even see it as a problem. That the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ provides forgiveness for those who are in shame. and ongoing ability to obey God for all of us. And so Paul is going to root his exhortation in an understanding of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Let's begin in verse 12. Verse 12, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. The first thing that he's going to say is this. Sexual freedom is actually slavery. Sexual freedom is actually slavery. The Corinthians had this... uh, probably saying or phrase, some of your translations may say it this way. Everything is permissible. All things are lawful. In some of your translations, those words may even be in quotation marks. The reason is that it is quite likely that this was sort of a slogan that they had in Corinth. And it's catchy, right? Everything is permissible. I can do anything that I want. And the idea was there's nothing out of bounds for me. I believe that Christians in the Corinthian culture were even utilizing this slogan to say, you know, because we're set free from the law, I don't have to worry about that whole sexual morality thing. Anything goes. Now, if you are an American in the 21st century, that slogan should sound vaguely familiar, right? We hear it all the time, framed in various ways. Do what feels right to you. Don't judge any behavior. What I do with my body is my business. We hear that all the time. And that was the ethic of the Corinthian culture. It is the ethic of our culture. In fact, just about a week ago, singer Dolly Parton did an interview. And when it came up, the issue of sexual ethics and particularly homosexuality... I think she expressed well the ethic of our culture. I think everybody should be allowed to be who they are and to love who they love. I don't think we should be judgmental, right? And that is the banner under which our world operates. Now, what's interesting is, of course, Dolly Parton doesn't want Jolene to take her man, right? Okay? <laughs> Only about a third of you understand that, okay? <laughs> When it comes to being able to love who you want to love, even those who argue for this banner of everything is permissible are going to say, but the boundaries stop when it comes to my man or my woman, right? But we live in a culture that says everything is permissible. And it may be you're here this morning and you hear that and you're beginning to get angry at those people out there, those liberals sexually or whatever it is that are ruining our world and ruining our culture. And the thing to remember as Paul writes this passage is actually he is not writing to those people out there. He's writing to these people in here. Because this issue of sexual immorality had crept into the church. And I think for many of us, it's easy to say, yes, I believe that sexual immorality is a violation of what God intends for us to do. And yet the things that I look at with my eyes, the TV shows that I watch, the music I listen to, even though it celebrates immorality, that's my time, my eyes, my ears, my entertainment. And so we even begin to buy into this idea that everything is okay. And that's happening in the Corinthian culture. Paul says, everything is permissible, but not all things are profitable or beneficial. Everything is permissible or all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Here's what he's saying. The ethic of sexual freedom leads to slavery. You begin with the illusion of control. I have a right to do what I want in the privacy of my home. And it leads you down the road to slavery. Because sexuality is such a powerful force that what you believe you control turns around and begins to control you. And some of you are in that spot right now. You began with a curiosity that perhaps led to an entitlement and now you're sitting here going, and now I can't get out. And it was designed to have a strong pull in the marital context. To draw a man and a woman together, to be committed to one another and faithful for life as a representation of the faithfulness and love of God in Jesus Christ. But Paul says what happens is you step outside of those boundaries and all of a sudden something gets a hold on your body and your spirit and your heart and you're mastered by it. You become the slave to that which you thought you controlled. Scientists over and over have done an experiment involving lab rats where they put these little rats in a box and they put a little lever in the corner and the rat can go over and press the lever and when they press the lever, it sends an electrical current into the rat's brain and it lights up what they call the pleasure center of the brain. You and I have a pleasure center in our brain that is activated as well when we eat or drink things we like or when we engage in sexual behavior and it lights up and what they have found is that these little rats given the power to pull the lever and decide when they want to activate pleasure will sit in the corner of the cage and hit it 700 times in an hour until they are exhausted and starved and dead. What they believe they have power over kills them. Now, granted, we are not rats. But the truth is that often sexual sin enslaves. And yet, God doesn't want us enslaved. And the great thing is we aren't rats or mice or dogs or cats. Because we have the opportunity to pursue freedom from sexual sin because the death and resurrection of Jesus provides the opportunity for the spirit to live in us and give us the power to be transformed. So Paul begins by saying, look, just because all things are permissible, just because you can do something, doesn't mean you should. Because what you see as freedom can lead you down the road to slavery. And freedom comes ultimately when you recognize the second point, which is this, sexual behavior is a spiritual issue. Sexual behavior is a spiritual issue. Start in verse 13. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. All right, what's going on is the Corinthians would try to separate spiritual issues from bodily issues. They followed the line of thought that was uh, really uh, advanced by Plato, which is you've got the body and you've got the spirit, and the two are very distinct. So what you do with your body, they said, doesn't affect your spirit and vice versa. So they said, I can be a spiritual person even while I'm engaged in sexual immorality. And the way they got there was by starting with this issue of food. They said, look, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God's going to do away with all of them. And then they made the leap and said, food is a bodily issue. Sex is a bodily issue. Therefore, if one is okay, the other is okay. And you see that? So they made this sort of lesser to greater illustration. Now, what's interesting is they were correct that what you eat is not the same type of spiritual issue as what you do sexually. And in fact, Jesus had said this in Mark chapter 7, verses 15 to 18, that nothing that you eat, nothing that comes in from the outside defiles you, but it's what comes out of you that defiles you. In other words, all foods, Mark says, Jesus declared, clean. That's not that gluttony is not a sin, right? That's not what he's saying. But instead, he's saying that there is a qualitative difference between what we eat and what we do in the sexual area of our lives. Many of you are in here this morning and you have a deep regret and your regret relates to all of the things you ate on Friday night, You filled your mouths and your bellies with candy and pie and all kinds of sweet treats and you woke up Saturday and you thought, I feel terrible, but there's still some candy left, right? And you went back... And you ate more and more. And now you're here this morning and you do not feel well. Now, if you did that every day for the rest of your life, your life would be rather short, right? You would obviously perish. But the reality is that the things that you ate on Friday and Saturday, eventually they will pass through your body. They will be gone and you are not permanently united to them. There is no spiritual connection between you and a taco, right? no matter how much you may think so, okay? You're laughing because you've thought that before, right? The reality is, though, Paul says that there is a qualitative difference in the consequences of sexual sin and the consequences of eating too much. I remember reading a story a number of years ago about a man named Antoine Yates who decided that he wanted to keep a baby tiger in his fifth floor apartment in Harlem. So he went and he got this tiger. I don't know where you get one of these things, but he bought a tiger and he brought it in. And of course it began to grow and it began to grow and it began to grow to the point that he was having to go to the grocery store and he was buying dozens of pounds of raw chicken every day to feed this animal. It got to be up over 400 some pounds, which is still not full grown and it began to get, like tigers get, a bit aggressive, particularly toward his cat, which I'm not sure why he kept the cat. (laughs) Ming the tiger began to get aggressive toward Snowflake, or whatever the cat's name was, and one day tried to attack the cat, and Antoine, the owner, stood between the tiger and the cat, and he got injured. He got mauled, and that's how he got discovered. He went to the emergency room and said, my dog bit me, and they looked at it and they said, that is no dog, right? (laughs) His leg was chewed up pretty badly. They found the tiger, and they took the tiger away. Now imagine that Antoine Yates came to you, and you said, you're crazy. You've got a tiger in a fifth-floor apartment. He said, I don't see what the big deal is. You've got a fish tank. You have a cat. There's a pretty big difference, right? In the consequences. In the significance of what we're dealing with. And what Paul says is, just because you can make an argument that one thing is okay with the body, that doesn't mean another is. Food is for the stomach. Stomach for food. God will do away with both. But the body is not for immorality. But for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become. One flesh, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. You see where he goes with this. He goes straight to the resurrection and the spirit who lives in you. And the idea is this, that when Jesus died and rose again and you believed in him, the spirit of God came into you and now he lives in you and you are united with Jesus in spirit. So to take the body that is united with Jesus and unite it in sexual immorality with someone other than one's spouse is a violation of what we would call redemption history. It's a rebellion against the gospel. It is a statement with my body that I deny the resurrection, that I deny the spirit who lives within me because I'm supposed to be united to Jesus. And instead, I am giving my body to sin. Sexual immorality, pornography, Premarital sex, adultery, all of these things open the most intimate parts of our bodies and parts of our spirit and parts of our heart to sin. And what Paul says is that God, through Jesus Christ, has claimed you for resurrection and unity with Him. And so the body is not for immorality, but it's for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. See, in Christian thinking, the body matters. What you do with your body matters. There is no spiritual person who consistently steps outside of those boundaries and uses his or her body in a way that dishonors God. Now again, there are Christians who believe in Jesus, who are destined for eternal life, who sin and struggle with sin. But doing so creates a serious rift in that ongoing relationship we have with Jesus. And so Paul goes straight to the heart of the gospel. It's interesting, in that Gallup poll I cited at the beginning, still the least approved of behavior overall, and this won't surprise you, was adultery or extramarital affairs somewhere around 6 to 7% of the people polled said that that was okay. So still more than 90% say that's out of the bounds of what's proper. And I think, why is that? Why is that when we, uh, our culture is open to every sort of sexual behavior that there's this one that people still say, don't do that? And the reason is because people recognize once you have united for life to one person, You don't violate that commitment by stepping over here and uniting with another. I think that's interesting because Paul uses that analogy in relation to Jesus. And he says, when you believed in Jesus, church, you're married to him. So sexual immorality is to step outside of that marriage covenant that you have with your Savior. And commit adultery with another. Because you're united to him through the Spirit who lives in you. He goes on in verse 18 to say, Flee immorality, which reminds us of Joseph in Genesis. Run away. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against. His own body, And again, he's not saying here that there are no other sins that harm the body. Certainly, you could harm yourself physically. You could kill yourself with the wrong things that you eat or ingest or take in with alcohol or drugs or the wrong food. He's not saying that there isn't any other sin that harms the body. Instead, he's saying that sexual immorality in a very different sort of way is a sin against what God has planned for the body. Again, because you're united with him in spirit. And destined for resurrection. And sexual immorality is a sin against this history and future that God has for your body. And so there are consequences of sexual sin that no other bodily sin carries. That when I unite with another outside of the boundaries. When I view sexual material that affects my spirit and my heart in the intimate parts of my body and someone else's. I'm violating God's plan for holiness for my body in a different sort of way than any other sin. And so the consequences are often long-lasting, and those who have engaged in sexual immorality know that, or you've talked to those who know that, that often years after the sin took place, there's still regret and, shame. and what started feeling like freedom at the beginning feels like deep shame on the other side. So he says, this is a deeply spiritual issue. There's no such thing as casual sex. There's no such thing as a sexual sin that affects my body, but not my heart and my spirit. Because I'm united to Jesus Christ if I believed in him. And Paul is going to provide hope in Jesus Christ. And that hope is in the power of the Spirit. But he goes on in verses 19 to 20 as he closes this part and says this, sexual immorality ultimately is a rejection of the authority of God. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God, In your body. The spirit lives in you. You're his temple. And you've been purchased. With a price. And the idea. In the original language of this being bought. Is being bought out of slavery. That God went to the marketplace. And saw all of us. Slaves to sin. Slaves to death. And the price. To free us. Was the death and resurrection of Jesus. And now we're a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. So that to sin in the sexual arena is to say, I do not accept God's ownership of me. Uh, There's a old episode of the 80s television show, Family Ties. It had Michael J. Fox. And some of you will have seen this show. Some of you will have not. But it centers on a middle-aged couple with some teenage kids And there's one episode in which uh, the couple go away, Stephen and Elise, the parents go away for a weekend and while they are gone, one of the kids wrecks their car. First day they're gone. They don't want to tell their parents so they hatch a scheme to try to earn the money to repair the car. And the scheme is that they will use the house, their house, their parents' house as a bed and breakfast. So they advertise in the community and they begin taking in people who want to stay at this bed and breakfast that they've set up, which is their parents' house. And of course, things get way out of hand. More and more guests come in. Eventually, an entire group comes in after a college football game and they bring a kangaroo and it goes crazy in the house. And it's right at that moment, of course, that the parents walk in early. And what they see is that their children have seriously violated the agreements of the house. The house belonged to them for their family to live in, not as a bed and breakfast. If you let someone stay in your house for the weekend and you came back and they turned it into a nightclub and say, you have violated the provisions that we set up. It's not your house. Paul says your body, it's not your house. It belongs to the spirit of God. And so sexual immorality is a violation of the agreement that we have with God in Jesus Christ. As I said at the beginning, I know that there are men and women in here who are struggling in these areas. And I think the reason that Paul is so sharp in this passage is because often with sexual sin, it's very easy to make excuses. It's very easy to find all of the reasons that this is an issue in my life. And there may be reasons. It may be that you have problems from your own family, from your own history, from your own background. It may be that you were hurt, and so now you hurt others. It may be that you feel addicted and enslaved, and there's all kinds of reasons you continue in sin. But Paul says, because you know Jesus, and the Spirit of God lives in you, there may be reasons, but there are no excuses. That all of the power to defeat sin is yours in Jesus. That all of the resources are yours in Jesus. And so God is good. And yet it's also time, Paul says, to own the responsibility for our own behavior. And to seek the power of God and the resources he has provided to find victory. And so, the solution to sexual immorality is actually not in our own willpower. It's actually not primarily in external controls, although those can be helpful, whether it's an internet filter, whether it's an accountability partner. Those can be extremely helpful, particularly as a manifestation of the influence of the body of Christ. But the primary power for defeating sin is the holy spirit who lives in you. And so for those who are here for whom this is an issue rehearse the truth first and foremost. That God is good. He purchased me with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Romans 8 11 says if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. So then we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. The spirit that raised Jesus from death is strong enough to free you from sin. And so at every moment of temptation." You remind yourself, I belong to Jesus Christ because the spirit is in me and God is good. He is not withholding good things from me, but he wants to know me. He wants to love me. He wants to be united with me in spirit. And my body is his. You rehearse the truth. And then for many, it may be that you need to ask for help. You need to ask for help from others. Perhaps you need to talk to a pastor, perhaps to a member of your home church or small group, to a Christian who can help you. Uh, We have a great ministry also here at Grace, Celebrate Recovery. They deal with all sorts of sin addictions and struggles from alcohol to drugs to sexual slavery as well. And the information about that is on our website. It may be that you need to take the step and say, even though it's embarrassing, even though I'm afraid, even though I don't even totally want to let go of this sin, I'm going to take the next step and tell somebody who can help. Because I belong to Jesus, because his spirit lives in me. And I know he's given power for freedom from sin. Maybe that you're here this morning and, You're struggling in this area, and yet you don't know the power of God through Jesus because you haven't believed in him. If that's the case, the message for you this morning is that all of the power to know God, to spend eternity with him, to know that you are destined for resurrection and belong to him, that comes from the fact that Jesus died to take away your sin and give forgiveness. And he rose again so you and I can have eternal life. Everybody who believes in that can have assurance that they will spend forever with him in heaven. For those who know Jesus, we continue to rehearse the truth that we're forgiven in Jesus Christ, that shame should not drive us back to these patterns of behavior because we feel that we're too far gone, that helplessness or feelings of helplessness are overcome by the power of the Spirit, and that there are resources and help in the body of Christ through the power of God, the spirit that lives in us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. In the midst of what really is a very difficult and heavy topic, we are grateful that there is hope. You never leave us without hope. And we remember the resurrection of your son, that he rose from the grave and that is not merely a story but that is the reality on which we stake our lives and our futures because we know that because Jesus rose, as Paul says, we will rise again also. And so you have claimed us as your own. So I pray we would hear the Spirit's voice. I pray we would seek the resources you have given through him and through your people to overcome the besetting sin that drags us away from knowing you. Father, we're grateful for your word. I pray it would convict. I pray it would free. I pray it would change us this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.